0: chapter two, we are studying Acts chapter 2 in our Sunday school class, and what I would like to do this morning, since this is something that I've been studying and had on my mind uh, very much in recent weeks. Uh, we're going to skip ahead a little bit uh, further in this text and where we are yet in our Sunday school class and look at a few verses from uh, Acts chapter 2 uh, here in this chapter that is the Day of Pentecost so I would like to begin by reading a few verses here. I'm going to begin in verse 22 and read verses 22 through 24. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 36 and read a few verses at the end of the chapter. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then skipping down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. May God bless his word uh, as it's been read in our hearing. Now, I want us this morning uh, to look at verses 22 through 24. Uh, let me, let me uh, correct that. I want us today to look at verses 22 through 24. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 22 and 23. And then, God willing, this evening, we'll be looking at verse 24. Now, let me give you the context of Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, Luke is reporting to us, the events of one of the most important days of human history, the day of Pentecost. The birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension into heaven, those are days, those are redemptive events that literally changed this world. The whole history of the world was leading up to and preparing things Uh, For these specific events to happen. Romans 5 6 says, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Now, here in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the benefits and blessings and promises that have been made real by the cross. And the empty tomb, and in the clouds will come to fullness and power in Christ's church. It is the 50th day since the resurrection. It is the 10th day after Christ's ascension to heaven. And on this day, the Holy Spirit will come to energize the church. It is a day that is like no other day, It is the climax of all these events, this series of epical days that will leave the world changed forever. This is the climax of his birth, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and now the coming of the Spirit on this day. Now following the dramatic manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the opening verses of this chapter, Peter will preach the first gospel sermon of the New Testament era. And we see that looking at verse 14. Notice the words there. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Now this proclamation by Peter is going to follow the pattern that we see often in the early church preaching. Uh, theologians often call this the kerygma. So if you're ever reading Uh, some kind of theological uh, work, and you see that term. It just simply means the message. This was the proclamation or the message of the apostles. And this uh, this thing that we see over and over again consists of four elements, and we see them here uh, in Peter's sermon. The first element is a declaration that a new age of fulfillment has come We are no longer waiting and expecting God's promises to be fulfilled. They are fulfilled now in Jesus Christ. And a new day has dawned. In this sermon, we see that in verses 14 through 21, where he quotes from the prophet Joel, who, writing some 600 years earlier, uh, speaks about the things that are happening on this day. But that prophecy now has come, and a new age has, has come upon us. The second element of the charisma, the proclamation, the message of the apostles, is the recital of the ministry, death, and triumph of Jesus. And so in these sermons that we see, these speeches that we see the apostles make, that is the second element. We see that in our verses that we're going to be looking at today, verses 22 through 24. These verses address his ministry his death, and his resurrection. The third element of these, of these uh, sermons is a citation of Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. We see that in this sermon in verses 25 through 36. Lord willing, we'll be looking at these Old Testament scriptures uh, tonight. In these scriptures, Peter will quote from Psalm 16 And Psalm 110 to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the promised one. And then the fourth element of this apostolic preaching, this apostolic message, is a call to repentance and a call to believe. And that is found in our text in verses 37 through 41. And so we see this pattern that is often the case in the book of Acts and sermons and and speeches that are made, we see it here in this first great sermon of the New Testament Church. Now this morning I want us to look at verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 is a statement about the public ministry of Christ. Verse 23 explains the crucifixion. This evening, Lord willing, we'll look at uh, the statement of the fact of the, resurre- of the resurrection and this fascinating statement that Peter makes about Jesus being raised from the dead. Lord willing, we'll look at that tonight. So verse 22 is about Jesus' public ministry. The men, verse 22 says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now, I want to remind you that the miracles of Jesus were always connected to spiritual purposes. Our verse says that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Miracles were never performed for their own sake. They were never performed to satisfy curiosity. You may recall that in the gospel record there were times that people came to Jesus and asked him to do a sign and he never was interested in those moments. They're never even primarily for the immediate benefit of those present, though oftentimes it was of great benefit to those to whom Jesus ministered by way of miracle. They always point to Jesus as the man, the only man, sent from God. Our verse tells us that Jesus was a man attested to you by God. And so the wonders, the signs, the miracles were always for this purpose. They were to attest the validity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Note that these signs were not mere novelties and curiosities. They were mighty works according to to our verse, leaving no doubt that they were from God. They were signs of God's kingdom, and they were, using the language of Hebrews 6, 5, they were evidence of the powers of the age to come. And as the signs confirmed Jesus as God's man, the message that he preached was confirmed as God's message and God's truth. I want to give you one example in Matthew chapter 9, In verses 2 through 8, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 9. Beginning in verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And so we see here an example of God attesting to the spiritual realities of who Jesus Christ was by the miracles and wonders and signs that he performed. He was a man attested to you. By God, and then Peter says a very uh, interesting thing at the end of the verse. He says that God, that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. It was public knowledge that Jesus of Nazareth was a miracle worker. In John two eleven, we read this: the first of His signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John 2.23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when, name when they saw the signs that he was doing. John 3, two. This man came to Jesus by night, that would be Nicodemus, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. John six two and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. John seven thirty one. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? John 9 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. John eleven forty-seven. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Then John 12 37, though. He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so, in despite of all the evidence, at the end of the day, most of the people do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and do not follow him. And there's an important spiritual lesson uh, to be learned here. Just because we are convinced That the man Jesus could perform miracles or even believe that Jesus was raised from the dead does not mean that we believe in him, that we follow him, or that we are saved by him. The people in this crowd knew Jesus. They had witnessed his public life. His reputation and his story was well known and fresh in their minds. Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's king. And he had demonstrated from the very first of his ministry the powers of the kingdom and, and demonstrated that they were his and he proved that he possessed them. In every word that he spoke with authority, he was declaring himself as king. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, uh, he, says, uh, he, he would say, you say, and then he would say, but I say, challenging the teaching of the of his day, we see that in chapter five, verses twenty one and twenty two, then in twenty seven and twenty eight, then in thirty one and thirty two, then in thirty eight and thirty nine, then in forty three and forty four. You say, but I say. And then in the next chapter, as he continues his sermon, he says, "Truly, I say to you, making these declarations, he does that in chapter six, verse 2 five, sixteen, twenty-five, 25 and 29 truly i say to you and then at the end of this sermon in chapter 7 in verses 28 and 29 in matthew we read these words and when jesus finished these sayings the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes luke 4:32 and they were astonished at his teaching For his word possessed authority. Every work of deliverance that he performed declared him uh, to be king. In every act of mercy and forgiveness. With kingly power he commanded the elements of nature. He turns water to wine he multiplies the fishes and the loaves he walks on the water the wind and the waves obey him disease and infirmity are subject to his command he commands even the dead and they obey these were the signs of his royalty and Peter says as you yourselves know these people knew and yet they did not believe you recall the rich man and Lazarus in uh, Luke chapter 16. In verse 27 we read, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, for if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And we see this come true right before our eyes here at Pentecost. They know the signs, but they do not believe. Even the resurrection has not caused them to follow Christ. But something is going to be different on this day. On this day there will be gospel preaching accompanied by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the hearers. On this day there will be grace. On this day God will act. On this day the Lord will call people to himself and they will come. Verse 37, as this chapter says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And verse 41 says, And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I would suggest to you, if you're not a Christian, that your intellect, your assessment of Jesus, your evaluation of evidence will never be enough to bring you to commit your whole heart and life and future to Christ. I would ask you to go to God and ask Him to save you. Ask Jesus to give you a new heart. Ask Him to give you the gift of faith and to help you believe. The promise is found right here in our chapter, in Acts chapter 2. In fact, it's the very, uh, the very preceding verse in Acts chapter 2, in verse 21. Verse 21 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so I would ask you, Uh, to go to Him, to go to our Lord Jesus Christ with your whole heart and ask Him to help you and enable you to believe and follow Him. Now, verse 23 is about the crucifixion of our Lord. Verse 23 says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, Peter is going to tell us two things about the death of Christ. He is going to tell us about the role of men, and he is going to tell us about the role of God. Peter says, this Jesus, and then I'll interject, quoting from the previous verse, attested to you by God, as you yourselves know, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, these events were fresh in their minds. It was just 52 days earlier that Jesus was taken to the cross, and the whole city was stirred up because of him. Now, I think that we sometimes think about the cross in a sanitized version. The cross scene that we see in Christian art, for example, is one That, on the one hand, it is terrible. There are nails in his hands and in his feet. But it is also cleaned up. There's a perfect upright body. A perfect clean upright body. Uh, There are a few little drops of blood in the appropriate places. There's a cloth covering his waist and groin area. There are a few fluffy clouds in the background on a clear blue sky. I want to remind you of what Peter is talking about and what would have been fresh in the hearts and minds of those that, of whom it said, you crucified him. On Thursday evening, it was actually the start of Friday as the Jews reckoned days from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m., Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper with his disciples in the upper room. During the meal, Jesus dismisses Judas to go out and complete his act of betrayal. He sends him out to do that. He then goes out with the eleven to the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, where he wrestles with the knowledge of all that will happen to him in the next few hours. And there, in the early evening hours, he begins the intense physical and mental suffering of extreme stress. As he anticipates the cross... In the sin he will bear. Luke tells us that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Judas the betrayer approaches him with a band of soldiers and betrays him with a kiss. As Jesus steps forward and identifies himself to the party with Judas, they draw back in awe of him and they fall to the ground. Jesus is taken first to Annas, the former high priest, and there he is questioned and he is struck by one of the soldiers. He's then taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he is blindfolded and sped upon and mocked and he is beaten by his captors. Between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. on Friday morning, there is a series of three sham and illegal trials by the Jewish authorities, and they again spit in his face and he is beaten a second time. At about 6.30 a.m., he is taken to the Roman governor Governor Pilate who sends him to King Herod for questioning. By 7.30, Herod has returned him back to Pilate. And Pilate washes his hands of the matter and gives in to the demands of the religious leaders and the mob that has gathered in the street. Jesus has been up all night with no rest He has endured a series of beatings which is now climaxed with the brutality of being scourged by the Romans, a flogging that leaves the victim a bloody mass, often unconscious, sometimes dead. The soldiers who are about to take him to be crucified strip him naked. They place a crown of thorns, one to two inches long, On his head and they strike him on the head over and over again causing severe bleeding. Jesus is no longer recognizable as a person. Fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah written about 700 years before, Isaiah 52, 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He is bleeding from his head, the back of his arms and legs, and his back where his flesh is ripped open and his bones are exposed. He is taken to Golgotha, and at 9 a.m. on Friday morning, he is crucified, his hands and feet nailed in place to the cross. Immediately upon his crucifixion, he utters the first word, his first word from the cross, Father, forgive them. Sometimes between 9 a.m. and noon, he speaks the second word from the cross. To the repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Before noon, he speaks the third word to his mother and to John, his disciple. Behold your son, behold your mother. At the sixth hour, noon, a midday darkness falls over the scene, and it lasts until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus hangs on the cross in complete darkness. It is really beyond our imagination to even begin to understand what transpires in that darkness between the righteous God and judge of all the earth who is a consuming fire as the man Jesus bears all the sins of every Christian who will ever live and enters the hell of God's unleashed judgment. Finally, approaching 3 p.m., the suffering of Christ has reached its climax, and it's near its end. Jesus is in the final minutes of his life as the darkness is nearly over. Jesus cries out that fourth word from the cross, words taken directly from Psalm 22:1, words spoken exactly as they were found in the Old Testament, uh, in the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. Eli, Eli, lama sabatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of the suffering and humiliation of Jesus' life is now it is at an end. He has been on the cross for six long hours. Now, very quickly, he will speak the final three words from the cross I thirst. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Jesus does something that no other person has ever done. He dismisses his spirit. It is 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon, and Jesus is dead. This Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, sinful men have murdered the sinless Son of God. But Peter tells us something else about the crucifixion. He tells us about God's role. And there's something extraordinary, something wonderful about what he says. He says in our text, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The statement here tells us that God delivered up Jesus to the cross on purpose and according to his definite plan. Now, there's no chance for us to misunderstand this statement In verse 23, the word plan is a word that means a resolved plan or purpose. The word definite is a word that means to mark off boundaries or limits, to determine, to fix. Sometimes this word is translated as predetermined because the appointments, the identification of boundaries, the determinations of purpose are made before the plan is executed. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ occurs in sober history because it is the prearranged, specific plan of God, boundaries and purposes determined by the God of heaven. Note the other word in our verse, the word foreknowledge. Now in the Bible, foreknowledge means something very different and much more than mere prescience. It is not just knowing something ahead of time. The doctrine of foreknowledge is a broad subject. Let me make just a a few brief statements about it. The idea of knowledge in the Bible has to do with relationship and commitment and love, not mere knowledge and information. For example, Adam knew his wife. Relationship, love, commitment, intimacy. God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, certainly God knows all the nations of this world. But it is only Israel that he has covenant relations with, love for, intimacy with. He only knows them. And Jesus will say on the last day, the day of judgment, to those not in saving relationship to him, I never knew you, Matthew seven twenty three. Now, obviously, he does and will know them, but he does not know them by way of commitment and love and relationship. In contrast to those that Jesus has never known, his people are said to be foreknown. God committed himself to them and placed his love on them before they ever even came into this world. And if you are a Christian, God has always loved you. He loves you now. He always will love you. You are foreknown by him. And now in regard to Jesus, his life, his ministry, his purpose, the statement here in Acts 2:23 and the statement here in Acts 2:23, I would like for you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at three verses that are here. 1 Peter chapter 1, I want you to look at the following verses with me. Verses 18 through 20. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. Jesus was foreknown as a lamb without blemish or spot, a lamb with precious blood, able to ransom and save. He was known in this way before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown as a perfect man, predetermined to go to the cross to ransom and save his people. This working out of salvation in this precise way was the commitment made by the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit before this world was ever created. And that is what Peter is declaring in these words. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now listen to what the scriptures say about God the Father and his purpose for the Son. If you would look at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we have seen him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We we all all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, of of us all. Smitten by God, pierced and crushed, the Lord laid on him. That's the language of these verses. Look down at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It was God's purpose that He would crush His Son so that He might be the Savior of His people. Now in the New Testament, I'm not going to turn to these verses, but Romans 4.25. He was delivered up for our transgressions. Delivered up by who? Delivered up by His Father. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all. Again, the Father giving up the Son for this purpose. Now, I do want you to look at one other verse, and that is Hebrews 2.10. Hebrews 2.10. This verse reads: For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, note that this verse says that it was fitting for God to subject His Son to suffering. To suffering. Now, the word "fitting" means to be seemly, to be becoming, to be proper to be appropriate, to be suitable. When it comes to God, it is a matter of right and wrong, a matter of righteousness, of perfection, of goodness, that things be done properly and in order. Is it okay for God to do something unseemly? Is it okay for God to do something inappropriate or or improper? Well, certainly it is not. It is a serious matter, this question of being fitting and appropriate and proper. Why was it proper for God to treat Jesus in this way, to send him to the cross? Well, our verse gives two reasons. The first is this. God's purpose in dealing with Christ was the salvation of many sons. This verse says it is to bring many sons to glory. And what must be accomplished by Christ for this to happen? Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 says that his people must have clean hands and a pure heart to be where God is and to enjoy him. But do they, but do they have these things? And of course, we know that we do not. In order for them to have clean hands and a pure heart, it is appropriate and fitting that God act as he does to accomplish this purpose. Jesus became like us that we might become like him, and his death was necessary and right if we were to ever go to heaven. Now, the second purpose was to perfect the man Jesus to be the captain and hero of our salvation. The word perfect in this verse means to bring to a goal, to qualify something for a certain purpose, to make something mature and complete. The perfection of the Son has nothing to do with his divine nature and his moral character and his eternal being. In these things, he is eternally and permanently perfect. The perfection of the Son has everything to do with the true man, the Son of Man, growing, learning, developing, maturing. In order for the Son to be a great high priest that was suited to to fully meet every need of his people, there was a process that needed to happen in the humanity of Jesus. He had to obey and to learn and to suffer. And he also had to complete and accomplish the actual redemption of his people by his death and his resurrection. He had to meet a certain goal. He had to become qualified for a certain purpose. And when our Lord Jesus Christ enters heaven and sits down at the right hand of God to take up his ministry... As our great high priest and king, he is a seasoned man. He is an experienced veteran. He is a mighty and proven and tested hero and champion. And he is a tender savior who can fully relate to everything we are and everything that we need. And that is why this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, the cross was not the end of God's purpose for Jesus. In verse 24, we're going to see that God raises him up. It was also his predetermined plan to raise the Son to life and to glory. Jesus is foreknown as Lord and Christ, and he will not be left in the tomb. Lord willing, we'll consider the resurrection and its implications uh, this evening in verses 24 and following. Peter is saying to those to whom he preaches, When you set your evil hands on him to destroy him, you were working out the eternal will of God. Now let's consider a few implications in closing. of Verses 22 and 23. God has provided proof beyond question that Jesus is the only Savior for sinners. He is the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Furthermore, he has placed him before you as his remedy for sin. The sacrifice designed to save before the world was ever created. This is the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus has been perfected by this plan. He is prepared and is able to meet every need that any of us have in our life or in our soul. God foreknew Jesus. And God foreknows every person that believes in him. And dear believer, that means that that God is committed to you. That he has placed his love on you. He knows you through and through. And nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. His covenant promises were extended to you personally and individually before you ever came in this world. And they will never end. If you're not a believer in this Jesus, then why not? This man is a mighty hero to all who believe in him. I urge you to run to him and live. At the end of this sermon, a great number from this crowd were cut to the heart. And they asked, what shall we do? And Peter has one simple command. Repent, turn to Christ, believe, and be saved. And on this day... The day this sermon was preached, there were many who received his word. 3,000 souls were added to Christ's church. May God bless us all to receive his word today, to believe in the one that God has established as his Christ and the only Savior of sinners. Let's go to the the Lord in a word of prayer.